When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Rockneycast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the third Rockneycast. I'm really excited about the third show. Today, we're going to shift gears a little bit, and we're not going to talk about politics. We're going to talk about a very basic question, which is, should you read Moby Dick? Yeah, you know, the thing with politics, the thing that we sometimes forget is sometimes I think we all get a little tired of it, don't we? Sometimes don't you feel like we're just sounding like the adults in Charlie Brown? Wah, 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 wah. Like, what do we have to say that's new, that hasn't already been said? This is the challenge of virtually every single political commentator. That said, we have a lot of fun, and we'll we'll still get back to politics now and then. But today we're going to have a little fun, and we're just going to talk about a very basic question. Should you read Moby Dick? And friends, I'm telling you, first of all, I want to tell you what this is not going to be. This is not going to be some extended academic discussion about the protagonist and the antagonist and the meaning of Moby Dick. That's not the purpose of this. I'm not an academic, not an English major. Took a few English classes in college, loved to read, but that's about it. Instead, I want to tell you how I came to Moby Dick, why I decided to read it, what it meant to me, its power, and its meaning to me, a 45-year-old man in middle age, Seen the edge of my own mortality. I know I'm 45 and the actuarial tables look pretty good. I probably have 35 to 40 years left. But you know, sometimes it's like that scene from Harry Met Sally, where Sally Albright, who's 33, talking to her friend Carrie Fisher in that beautiful park in Central Park in New York. And she tells Carrie Fisher, she says, but, you know, I'm almost 40, and I'm not married. And then Carrie's like, oh, but you're almost, you're, you're only 33. And I know, and then Meg Ryan responds, Sally's like, I know, but it's already there. It's just over the corner. And so sometimes that is the way you feel in middle age. You think you have some more time left, but you can see it. You can feel it. You think about, gee whiz. If I add an extra 20 years, I'm 65. Add 20 on top of that, I'm bumping up against the mortality table. You can feel it. But for me, one of the gratifying parts about being middle-aged, when you see that edge of your own mortality, is you start to really savor life. You start to ask questions like, which books should I read? And as I hit 45... There was a book that I had not read, Moby Dick. 
Moby Dick is one of those books that you either come to through high school or maybe your college English class. And the question always is, are you really ready to read it when you do read it? And then you have a professor explain it to you and hopefully in between going out to the bars and trying to find yourself as a young person, you actually had time to read it. And you really aren't really mature enough to come to terms with it. It's power, it's meaning, what it means to you. So I'm going to share with you how I actually decided to read it. It ultimately was a decision for me of this great American novel. Some say it's the best American novel ever written. And, you know, there are those books where everyone says are wonderful books, but then you always sort of wonder yourself, is it really that good a book? Or is it just sort of like eating your literary vegetables? And so I approached Moby Dick with a little bit of trepidation, thinking, am I going to just, is this going to be like eating my literary broccoli, where I'm just going to have to suffer through each page, and it's going to be just this Moby Dick is going to be my Moby Dick, that I'm just going to have to plow through it and suffer. And I feared that the prose would be heavy mid-century, 19th century prose, and the protagonist would sound like this. And they would get into the boat, and they would search for the whale, and it would be mind-blowingly numb. Well, friends, let me tell you, it was not mind-blowingly boring. It, Moby Dick, was one of the best books I've ever read. It really is that good. One of the best of all time. And it's worth it. And it's not boring. And it is a page-turner from the start. There are no boring parts of it. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Your hair will stand on edge as you approach it. You will have salt-encrusted hair, metaphorically, after you read it. It is worth the experience. So let's go to 10,000 feet a little bit and talk to you a little bit about Melville. Um, Herman Melville is the person who wrote the book. And... Melville wrote it when he was only 32 years old. He was born in 1819. Moby Dick came out um, in 1851. It was inspired in part uh, by the actual um, Moby Dick ship, uh, inspired by the Essex, which if you do have time on a collateral read for another adventure, highly recommend the Essex. Um, and it's uh, called, the novel is called In the Heart of the Sea, The Tragedy of the Whaleship Essex by Nathaniel Philbrick. That's the real life um, uh, tale that inspired Moby Dick. And I commend Yale Cohn uh, for recommending that book to me. It's a fabulous book if you do read Moby Dick. It's the real life story. But it's also based upon Melville's experience as a young person on an actual whaling ship. Two books that I want to follow up on after uh, this book are the Umu and the Tipi, or the Taipi, 
which are the original um, two books that Melville wrote after his adventures in the South Pacific. He was on a whaling ship in the South Pacific, and he explored various locations such as the Macasas Islands. And he wrote the book when he was 32, and it really struck me that, you know, 32 years old, you look at it from today's vantage point, and you don't think that someone possibly 32 could write a book of that magnitude. But at the time in the, in the 1850s, that was middle age. In fact, there's one part in the book, in the afterwards to the book, when the uh, scholar that reviewed Moby Dick had said that uh, Melville indicated that life did not really begin until after 25. And I think what he meant by that was, is that there is something about that where you have your life's experience, your knowledge, your professional expertise, where you do reach a kind of wisdom in middle age. You know, in middle age, you're no longer young. Um, you're no long, you're not super old. You have the experience uh, of years of living and you still have the youth to be able to seize upon those experiences. And so for Melville, what I think makes him so incredible is how he synthesized this adventure story. And then he had the metaphor of the whale, the great white whale, Moby Dick. And Captain Ahab, who was the captain of the Pequod, and his eternal search to seek revenge against Moby Dick because he had lost his leg in a previous encounter with this great white whale. And this is not the type of book, yes, there is a sequence of events, yes, there is a beginning, there is a middle and the end, but for me, I read it every night before I went to bed. And if you want to basically have your mind blown philosophically, religiously, sheer linguistic talent, you're going to want to read this book because it will change your life. It will change the way that you think. And it will also be a gift that keeps on giving. I'm planning on reading it again. I think this is the type of book that you can probably read every two years. Um, I completed it about six months ago. And so today what I'm going to try to do is not necessarily give you some sort of penetrating academic analysis, but just share some of the characters that really impacted me, um, things that I'd like to follow up on, share some of the beautiful passages that were written, and hopefully offer you a little bit of insight into um, what you can use this book for into the future because it really is as good as they say it is. It's worth it. It's definitely worth being considered a classic of American literature. First off, related to Ishmael, the book of course starts with the famous phrase, they call me Ishmael. And it's obviously, I think it is Melville a little bit himself recalling some of his own adventures that he had had. And then there is Ishmael's um, colleague and acquaintance, Queequeg, which was a character that I think really surprised me more than anyone else. Queequeg is this character out of the South Pacific. And after reading this book, it really made me want to explore 
the South Pacific and all the literature, there's these great civilizations of the Hawaiian Islands, uh, Western South Pacific, um, the Marquesas Islands, you know, all those adventure stories that, that occur in these lost, deserted islands. There were whole civilizations that existed there. And the way that Melville, and of course, if you look at some of the 19th century writing, it is a little outdated, obviously, in the sense of how he approaches Queequeg. But I find Queequeg to be one of the, the most fascinating characters. He's exotically described in terms of his hair, the jewelry that he wears, the tattoos throughout his body, his musculature, his skill as a harpooner. And you can really see Melville's, or I'm sorry, Ishmael's growth in terms of really appreciating Queequeg as a, as a colleague and as someone he can depend upon. And there's also, I won't give it away, but there's a hilarious way in which they are introduced to one another at the beginning of the book that you'll, you'll literally laugh your you-know-what off because it's so good. So, and then of course there's Ahab. And Ahab, I mean, you could probably write a million books on Ahab. Ahab is the captain. Ahab is a little off. Ahab is obsessed with getting Moby Dick and he's basically willing to put all of his chips on the table so he can get Moby Dick. And so the book is just one of these things where it almost creates a Star Wars-like universe where you feel that it can almost go in any direction afterwards. And as an aside, one of the things that I was not able to find, and maybe some of our listeners can educate me otherwise, it does not seem like there have been any other books written on Queequeg. Um, I at least didn't see any on Amazon or search it in Google. Um, some of you Melville scholars maybe can help me out a little bit. But I think that that would be, I mean, he's almost worthy of a separate book. You know, The Adventures of Queequeg. Um, I think that would be something that would be interesting to pursue. But for me, as I said, it wasn't necessarily the sequence of events that appealed to me. It was the breathtakingly beautiful writing. And I'm going to share some passages with you that will absolutely blow your mind. Intrigued? I read this book after I had just seen Joaquin Phoenix's intensely done version of The Joker. And it occurred to me that, oh my gosh, is it possible that this was inspired that the Joker and the, and, the, and the deep psychological themes were inspired by characters like Captain Ahab. Now, I have no idea whether that's actually the case, but I think Moby Dick sets the sort of foundation for so much of American literature that comes afterwards. It not only will blow your mind to the day today, but can you imagine what it did to the 19th century mind with the deep, psychological, penetrating analysis. It was incredible. And just as I had thought that, wow, this could possibly be an inspiration for the Joker. I came across this passage in the book and you will be blown away at how beautiful it is. There are certain queer times and occasions in this strange mixed affair we call life. When a man takes this whole universe for a vast practical joke, though the wit thereof he but dimly discerns and more than suspects that the joke 
is at nobody's expense but his own. However, nothing dispirits and nothing seems worthwhile disputing. He bolts down all events, all creeds and beliefs and persuasions, all hard things, visible and invisible, never mind how knobby, as an ostrich of potent digestion gobbles down bullets and gunflints. And as for small difficulties and worryings, prospects of sudden disaster, peril of life and limb, all these and death itself seem to him only sly good-natured hits and jolly punches in the side bestowed by the unseen and uncountable old joker. That odd sort of wayward mood I am speaking of comes over a man only in time of extreme tribulation. It comes in the very midst of his earnestness, so that what just before might have seemed to him a thing most momentous now seems but a part of the general joke. There is nothing like the perils of wailing to breathe this free and easy sort of genial desperado philosophy. And with it, I now regarded this whole voyage of the Pequod and the great white whale, its object. Are you kidding me? And you can just, you can just see Melville sitting with that lamp at his side, writing, reflecting from the vantage point of middle age on those great adventures that he had had as a young man, where he confronted death and peril, fear, hope, exaltation, happiness, sadness, the intense human emotion of life. And that cannot, experience, that cannot be experienced unless you climb those mountains, unless you take risks, unless you face peril. And I think that's the great challenge and sometimes the ennui that sets in in middle age as we confront the banality of everyday existence. Well, we really wonder what is more out there with the time that we have left. And there's just something so powerful about that. And as I'm talking to you, we are in the midst of a COVID pandemic with Donald Trump as our president. And don't you identify with that passage that life itself seems sometimes like a grand joke and we are just in the midst of a gigantic comedy beyond our control and beyond our ability to understand. This is the sort of thing that gives you pleasure when you read the book because this type of passage exists throughout this sort of philosophical and psychological intensity and it's there throughout and there are times when you read it when you almost just have to put the book aside and say whoa this is so good and you can just see 
when Melville is sitting, and I don't, I have no idea where he wrote the book actually. Okay, so scholars indulge me, but I can just see Melville in a little writing shack near the ocean, hearing the waves come in, and just and, and writing in these these passages. And how satisfied he must have been and how difficult he must have just been drenched in sweat at the end of, of writing some of these passages. And I'm sure as he did, he was connected. And there is really one interesting passage while Melville's writing the book where he actually refers to himself writing, well, himself, he's referring to Ishmael writing in the studio at a particular time, at a particular date. And it is incredible because it's almost as if he's inviting you back to be with him as he's composing this great work of art. It's incredible. So you'll experience that as you read Moby Dick throughout. It is not boring, my friends. And aside from the philosophical beauty of the work and the psychological intensity, there are other passages that are just so beautiful that a poet could hardly do any better. For example, this is a passage of his description of the ship passing by the Azores off the Cape de Verde on the so-called, on the plate, near the Rio de Plata. And Melville writes that the Pequod, what it was while gliding through these latter waters that one serene and moonlit night, when all of the waves rolled by like scrolls of silver, and by their soft, suffusing seethings, made what seemed a silver, silvery silence, not a solitude on such a silent night. A silvery jet was seen far in advance of the white bubbles at the bow. Lit by the moon, it looked celestial. Seemed some plumed and glittering god uprising from the sea. Fadala first described this jet, for of these moonlit nights it was his wont to mount the main mastheads and stand a lookout there with the same precision as if it had been by day. And yet though herds of whales were seen by night, not one whaleman in a hundred would venture a lowering for them. Friends, I mean, that's, that's the type of writing that you experience over and over and over again. And you will wonder how you did not read this book. And it also sort of got me to thinking, why do so many people not read the book? I think sometimes academics, by the way, academics, I absolutely love you. I, I, I thought about becoming an academic at some point, I, you know, primarily because I wanted the three months off 
and I thought it'd be a pretty cush job. Come on, it's a pretty cush job. You got to admit it. But I think a lot of times academics, their entire career is based upon making everything complicated. So what happens is, is they teach the kids these materials, and the goal is, is to make it as complicated as possible. And sometimes I think that's a mistake. I think sometimes you don't always have to have five levels of analysis. You need to just reveal the beauty of the work and let the student enjoy it. Or they may attack me and say, well, you are not a Melville scholar. How can you review Moby Dick? You don't have the credentials. And I think a lot of times if you ever watch academics give present presentations on literature, they speak in sort of a stilted form. And I think a lot of times it can be a little bit of a turnoff. And so that's why I think a lot of times students sort of uh, check out because they don't feel connected to the work. So there's a lot of different reasons why people don't read it, but I think that if they actually have the opportunity to experience it, it is a roller coaster of emotions. And then, of course, there is Ahab. Where do you begin to talk about Ahab? You know, this reminds me of, the, you know, everyone has their great white whale. That thing that they confront, that thing in their life that they chase after, their people's desire for revenge. I think to some degree, even though Ahab comes off as a little bit crazy, don't we all have a little craziness in us in terms of psychological things that affect us, things that motivate us? things that we search for, things that we desire. Even if we don't go on this great adventure and physically go and search for Moby Dick, don't we all sort of wonder if we're not doing that, whether we're doing the right things with our life? Doesn't a little part of us just want to get on that ship and go and run and have that great adventure? You try to do that when you're a young person, but when you hit middle age, you have other responsibilities. And that's important. Because it's not only about you, it's about everyone. And Ahab is a central figure, and he's very colorfully described throughout. And you really have to, one, just enjoy the way in which he's described, because the guy is a little off. He is sort of an intense figure, but of course it also plays into how we actually utilize him to guide our life and to think about our own Moby Dicks and our own searches. And in the process of chasing someone, do we destroy ourselves? Because his connection and his desire for revenge against Moby Dick is driven by the fact that in a past encounter, in conflict with Moby Dick, he lost a leg. And so he wanted to take his revenge. And revenge is such a powerful human emotion. But you know, you think about revenge, and I won't tell you how the book ends, but I'm just going to say it does not end well for Ahab. But how often when people take their revenge, does it really give them what they want? And that goes back to what I talked a little bit about in our last show. 
this concept of love and forgiveness that's so needed in our culture. We're all yelling at one another. We're all chasing after this Moby Dick, this character who has injured us and wounded us. And we seek our revenge, but does that ever really give us peace? No, it does not. You know, one of the wisest professors that I ever had was a professor named Simon Hansen at Luther College. And he could give these lectures that were so good, you could hear a pin drop during the middle of the lecture where he would connect with you. And I remember once when he was discussing a biblical passage, he was discussing the concept of forgiveness. And he indicated that in the Jewish tradition, and of course the Christian tradition, forgiveness is not only about forgiving the other. It is also about letting go yourself. Because if you hold these resentments, if you seek these revenge like Ahab, so often it eats you up inside and you become subsumed by the very thing that you're seeking your revenge on. And that is so important and I think that that is something that I would like to even explore more with Melville, if you ever had a chance to talk to him or Melville scholars, what really did, what was the inspiration in Melville's own life for Captain Ahab? You know, sometimes in terms of even doing the book, the book itself was so psychologically intense for Melville. He had some, some books afterwards that he, he wrote, but for the most part, after his you know, mid-30s, late-30s, he really did not do a lot for the rest of the rest of his life. He had said almost as if, this is what I have to give and I have no more. It's, it's, it's it. But in terms of the passages for Ahab, they are so intense, you will not even believe the intensity in terms of Ahab, in terms of how they um, describe it. And you can... Talk about a psychologically intense character, but can you even remotely approach the intensity and just the beautiful description and the way in which Melville approaches Ahab? And this is in reference to Ahab. He said, but as the mind does not exist unless leagued with the soul, Therefore, it must have been, in Ahab's case, yielding up all of his thoughts and fancies to one supreme purpose. And that purpose, by its sheer inveteracy of will, forced itself against gods and devils into a kind of self-assumed, independent being of its own, nay, could grimly, grimly live and burn, live and burn, while the common vitality to which it was conjoined fled horror-stricken from the unbidden and unfathered birth. Therefore, the tormented spirit that glared out of bodily eyes, when what seemed 
Ahab rushed from his room was for the time being but a vacated thing, a formless, somnibalistic being, a ray of light, to be sure, but without an object to color, and therefore a blankness in itself. God help thee, old man, thy thoughts have created a creature in thee, and whose intense thinking that makes him a Prometheus. A vulture feeds upon that heart forever. That vulture, the very creature he creates. Are you still here? Are you with me, friends? Do you have any doubt now why you should read Moby Dick? And when you think about the toxicity in our own culture... That toxicity is precisely what we're dealing with in the sense of our almost like Ahab-like desire to seek vengeance against those that we disagree with, those that we hate. And I think of, for example, some of the right-wing groups today that we're dealing with, and, and sometimes the left-wing groups just the sheer amount of hate in their hearts and how they're able to reconcile that. And Melville here uses the word vulture, where that very thing that you seek, you create a kind of vulture that almost eats away at your own soul. That desire for revenge becomes so toxic that it turns in on itself. And I think that has created a type of toxicity in our own culture that I think has really done a lot of damage. And I think it's something that we need to always keep in mind. But he doesn't only do sort of these third, these descriptions of, of, of Ahab. He also has some areas where he actually assumes, assumes the identity of Ahab, where it is Ahab himself talking and it becomes incredibly intense when you get inside the mind of Ahab. And here Ahab states, as he's gazing out the cabin windows, sitting alone, gazing out. This is the part. I have dared, I have willed, and what I have willed, I will do. They make me mad, Starbuck does, but I am not a demoniac. Demoniac. I am madness maddened, that wild madness that only is calm to comprehend itself. The prophecy was that I should be dismembered. I, I lost this leg. And now prophecy that I will dismember my dismemberer. Now then be the prophet and the fulfiller one that's more than ye, ye great gods ever were. I laugh and hoot at ye, ye crickered players. Cricket players, ye pugilists, ye deaf burks, and ye blinded bendigos. I will not say as schoolboys do to bullies. Take some one of your own size, but don't pummel me. No, ye knocked me down and I am up again, but ye have ran and hidden. Come forth from behind your cotton bags. I have no long gun to reach ye. Come, Ahab compliments to ye, Come and see if you can swerve me. Swerve me, ye cannot swerve me, 
El ye, swerve yourselves, man has ye there, swerve me. The path to my fixed purpose is laid with iron rails, whereupon my soul is grooved to run over unsounded gorges, through the rifle hearts of mountains, under torrents' beds, unerringly I rush. Knots an obstacle, knots an angle to the iron way. I mean, this is just... If you could see me right now, my hair is on end. This is how good this book is. The fact that you can, you have the opportunity to experience this. When you, when you read this book, you may need to like, need some counseling afterwards that it's so intense. And there is the, the, the mind of Ahab obsessing, seeking his revenge, wondering and, and not letting anything step, step or, or affect his path. And you think about, I always think about like Ahab's family, who he's hurt. He's basically willing to sacrifice everyone to further his own ends. With a huge ego, a narcissistic complex, who soothes with resentment and anger towards others. Sound familiar? Well, that's something that we have to deal with in our own time, is it not? With a certain political leader that will basically stop at nothing to save himself, damn the rest of us. It's almost like friends that were on the Pequod and we have this crazy captain manning the ship. Who knows what's going to happen, but... Hopefully we have a happy ending, more happy than the tale of Moby Dick. We're getting close to the end of this podcast, and thanks for staying with me this long. You know, I think as you do get older and you get a few more gray hairs, you do get reflective. and You think about the challenges that you have in life, what life means the people that you love, the choices that you make. And it's nice to have books of this magnitude that can guide you and that you can experience. If you haven't had the opportunity to read Moby Dick, put it on the list. It's worth it. I'm going to be reading it again because you can read this book over and over and over again. It's that good. And so I want to close with a, another passage in which Melville gets really philosophical. He tends to get philosophical at the end of each chapter. It's almost his way that he completes the, the mood or the, or the scene. I don't know whether he read any Shakespeare, but they're almost like these profound soliloquies. So I close with this, my friends, as you confront your own storms and turmoils in your own life. Think about passages like this. As the profound calm, which only apparently precedes in prophecies of the storm, is perhaps more awful than the storm itself. For indeed, the calm is but the wrapper and the envelope of the storm and contains in itself as the seemingly harmless rifle holds the fatal powder, 
and the ball and the explosion. So the graceful repose of the line as it silently serpentines about the oarsman before being brought into actual play. This is a thing which carries more of a true terror than any other aspect of this dangerous affair. But why say more? All men live enveloped in whale lines. All are born with halters around their necks. But it is only when caught in the swift, sudden turn of death that mortals realize the silent, subtle, ever-present perils of life. And if you be a philosopher, though seated in the whale boat, you would not at heart feel one whit more of terror than those seated before your evening fire with a poker and not a harpoon by your side. Isn't that true? We all, to some degree, are enveloped in our own whale lines, whether they are whale lines of our own mind, our own construction, external factors, internal factors, but they are part of life. And I love the concept of all are born with halters around the neck. But it is almost as if, as we go through our own peril right now in the time of COVID, we do confront life. We do confront death. We do confront the things that we've been seeking, the changes we want to make in our life, and the next steps. And Moby Dick really helps us confront so much of what it means to be a human. Our fears, our hopes, our dreams, our psychology, pure beauty, sadness, death, and life. And of course, I really haven't mentioned the most important part of the book are the whales, the beautiful whales. And they're part of the story too. And I think of the sadness of the price that they all paid for an economic system that depended upon their very existence to, to move on. And so that's this book. It's just, it's mind-blowingly beautiful. It's intense. So if you haven't read it, read it. It's going to change your life. Thank you, friends. I'm glad that you've been able to experience some more time with me. Very proud we've reached our third show. I feel like I want to sing a little song. You know, I'm coming out. I want the world to know. I want the world to see. I want to let it show. I'm coming out. Okay, well, I guess I'm not really that great a singer, but I do feel good because we're now here at our third podcast. So I hope you're going to spread the word. Uh, my goal in the original um, goal of the show was to get some, get some shows moving before we'd sort of blare it out to the world. And so keep on giving me feedback in terms of what you like and what you don't like. Um, as I said, we're in some of our future episodes, we are going to discuss um, some aspects of the science of the COVID crisis, you know, how we basically process that as the public, who we should rely upon, decisions we should make because we're going to have some very important choices moving forward. 
And I'm also going to dive into in future podcasts this question of, I think it's very important for politics too, what makes us change our mind? That's an important topic. What makes us change our mind politically? And we're going to just explore some writers like Malcolm Gladwell, Dan Airely, and other um, great writers on those topics. So thank you once again. Very much appreciate you coming along with me on this great adventure. And I'd love to see you for future shows. Thank you much for following me on the RockneyCast. And if you have any other suggestions, email me at rockneycast.com. Have a wonderful day, my friends. Thank you very much. Thank you.